This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Professor Chaba Sabeshwari is head of the foundation's team at DeepMind, professor of computer science at the University of Alberta, Canada CIFAR AI chair, fellow at the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute, co-author of the book Bandit Algorithms, along with Tor Lattimore, and author of the book Algorithms for Reinforcement Learning. Thank you, Shaba, for being here. Thank you for having me. You've described your research interest as interactive online learning. Can you tell us when did you decide to dedicate yourself to this field, and how did you come to that decision? Uh, yeah, I guess this goes back uh, to my PhD years, uh, when I first discovered reinforcement learning. And I've been interested in AI, and I saw that reinforcement learning is uh, a very good way to study uh like how to create intelligent agents. So after this, uh, yeah, I started working on this. And then since then, I've been working on this. Would you say your career turned out as you planned or are you surprised by how it turned out? Well, I didn't always plan things. So after my PhD, I was working for, for industry for quite some time. And after that, I came back to, uh, to academia and uh, so I cannot say that I was planning everything that happened to me, but uh, things worked out pretty well, I would say. So in your professional life, what accomplishments do you feel has meant the most to you? And has that idea of what's most important changed over your career? I guess from the very beginning, I was uh, curious about uh, what is possible to achieve with uh, algorithms and with what sort of algorithms. And so the limits of performance and like creating understanding uh, about problems, uh, achieving better understanding of problems. And so, so results that uh, kind of show that uh, are the most important to me and has, that has always been the case. Can you tell us a bit about the foundation's team at DeepMind? What is the goal of that team? Yeah, so the foundation's team at DeepMind uh, has been created uh, about a little bit more than two years ago. And uh, it's, uh, as the name suggests, the goal of the team is to study the foundations of, uh, of AI, uh, machine learning, reinforcement learning, uh, create a better theoretical understanding of uh, what's possible to achieve uh, in these fields. Can you say anything about the difference between doing this type of work in industry and academia since you've seen both sides? I guess industry means a lot of different things. So that I am currently at DeepMind, I think DeepMind is very, very specialist in industry. It's, it's almost like an ideal academic environment. But uh, industry in general doesn't necessarily mean this. So from this perspective, uh, DeepMind is maybe even more academic than an academic environment uh, because uh, you can just like focus on research. When you're designing a new algorithm or when you're doing the type of research you do, what what does it look like to do that type of work? Um, what does your day-to-day look like? Um, what kind of milestones are there in the middle of uh, a project like that? Yeah, so the type of work I, I do is, is of theoretical nature. So it's a lot of bouncing back and forth between problems, models, uh, algorithms, and, and trying to figure out... Uh, like uh, 
what is the next problem to look at, in what model, and uh, with what algorithms to approach a given problem, or even just trying to understand whether there exists some algorithm that is able to you know, break through some, some barrier. Uh, so a lot of bouncing back and forth between uh, these different aspects of the world. So you have advised uh, a lot of accomplished researchers for their masters and PhDs. On your homepage, you mentioned what you look for in students. I wonder if you can say anything about what you think the students should look for in an advisor. I guess uh, it's pretty important uh, that advisor should be able to act as a good mentor, in addition to be technically proficient. Things that are maybe sometimes overlooked is whether an advisor is going to have the time, for example, to uh, to work directly with the students. I think that that's pretty important. Is there some stages of maturity in machine learning and reinforcement learning that researchers go through? And what, it, what in, in your mind, what does that type of ladder look like or progression? I guess it's probably not that different than in other fields in that uh, you first have to pick up certain technical skills before you're able to move on to the next uh, level of the ladder, which could be to uh, to pick your own problems, to design your own problems, your own challenges. So I guess, uh, yeah, that's that must be the same in every field. I feel. So when we talk about reinforcement learning, there's, there's these different problem settings and subfields that come up, bandits and game theory and the full RL problem and control systems, optimization. Are all of these fields uh, brothers and sisters of each other? Are they all subfields of something? Or how should we think about these different aspects? Are they, are they different perspectives? Do we need to understand them all to be good at uh, decision-making under uncertainty? I guess the more you understand, the better you'll be off uh, to start with that. Uh, what's necessary to understand, I don't know. Uh, I try to learn about all these different uh, perspectives. But a lot of times what you discover that uh, these perspectives come from uh, like a certain time, a uh, certain type of problems have been important for people. And uh, as times uh, move on, uh, some of the uh, results and achievements of uh, previous results achievements uh, become less important or like less important from the perspective of the type of problem that you're trying to solve. Nevertheless, it happens uh, a lot of times that uh, people before us have thought about the same problems, uh, maybe approached it slightly differently, but had very valuable thoughts. So it's, it's really worthwhile to study uh, all these different uh, viewpoints. Um, and, and yes, these fields are by and large studying the, the same problem. These settings have been around for many decades. Is it a fair question to ask, like, do we have all the fields right now that we need, or are there still some missing in this list that don't exist yet? <laughs> well, uh, that's really hard to, to answer. I guess uh, we are creating fields as we go. Uh, so I expect new fields are going to, to, to uh, emerge, but I have not the faintest clue about what they could be or how they're going to look like or how they are going to be different uh, than, than the ones that we currently have. So you, you said that we're creating fields as we go. Can you, could you mention maybe a more recent, a more recent subfield? I mean, like if, if you just like think about uh, the buzzwords uh, of today uh, that haven't been buzzwords yesterday and then, then 
uh, as we progress, these buzzwords uh, become fields on their own. So a buzzword of uh, not a long time ago has been data science, right? Uh, I guess maybe it's still uh, popular in certain circles. A newer buzzword is deep learning. Uh, other own fields or not, like, I don't know, maybe they are or they will be. Uh, so uh, so this is exactly what I mean, that uh, as our interests uh, and focus shifts, a lot of people start to, uh, to work on the same topic and then it may become on its own field. So in your Bandit Algorithms book, um, you note in the, in the introduction that Bandit problems were introduced uh, by Thompson in 30, back in 1933 in the context of medical trials. So now it's, I guess, 87 years later, and I've read that the FDA discourages the use of bandits in clinical trials. Do you feel strongly that should change? And what do you think it would take to change that? I'm pretty sure that things are going to change. That is uh, usually a back and forth between, you know, uh, technological pushes and uh, uh, regulation. The regulators are rightly uh, thinking very carefully about the pros and cons uh, of uh, different approaches. Uh, and uh, I think what changes is that in biology uh, as well, you can see a lot of advances. Just yesterday I read an article in, in a scientific journal that was talking about that uh, today uh, it is possible to create medications for a single patient and uh, people are debating whether we should do that. So when things change so drastically, I don't see why uh, FDA, who previously had uh, an opposing opinion about this particular topic, wouldn't change uh, its mind about benefits. I think that, so I, I haven't read this, uh, this discouragement, but I, as far as I know, uh, there are actually some trials that are using uh, bandit type of algorithms. Uh, um, in your book, you mentioned the EXP4 algorithm, which learns to delegate to a set of experts, if I understand correctly, mm -hmm. which themselves could be bandit algorithms. So I was just wondering, is, is EXP4 kind of like the bandit version of hierarchical reinforcement learning and the other experts are like options in RL? Or is that mapping not very good? Well, the mapping is, uh, is good to some extent, but uh, it's missing a lot of elements. As in bandits, you don't have uh, non-trivial state transitions. There is no real aspect of uh, planning in standard bandits, at least. I mean, like there is planning for reducing uncertainty, but uh, that's all. So uh, this framework is meant to study informa information sharing in a hierarchical content, uh, in a hierarchical um, context. And, and, and it's good for that. Uh, but hierarchical RL uh, has a lot of other aspects that uh, this framework just cannot have. I, w I wonder if like automated methods will ever be used to find you know, improved fundamental bandit algorithms. Is that a sensible thing? Oh, yes, for sure. Uh, why not? With my colleagues uh, at Google Brain, we are actually looking at um, some of these automated methods to construct bandit algorithms. Uh, it's like the, the thing that you need to understand is that uh, 
these have different goals. So if you have uh, a set of uh, different Benedict environments uh, that you can sample from, then uh, there is a lot of sense to specializing to these set of environments and uh, an automated learning are perhaps more efficiently than uh, what a human uh, would be able to do because for a human, it may be uh, very uh, oblique, opaque, to extract the knowledge required to specialize the bandit ergotoms. So it makes a lot of sense to me to do this. And you've said, um, if I can paraphrase, that machine learning research should reduce emphasis on competitive testing and that the purpose of science is to generate knowledge. Do you think of bandit algorithms that you produced more as inventions or more like their discoveries? Like, is this science or is it engineering? So this question has two parts. I'm not sure how the two parts are related to each other. So the first part was... Uh, so I, I was reflecting something you said that uh, ML research should reduce emphasis on competitive testing and that the purpose of science is to generate knowledge. So yes. as opposed to just optimizing on a, on a leaderboard, maybe? Yeah, so I, I still maintain that. Uh, I think that purpose of science is uh, really just to, to generate knowledge and not just, but like ultimately that's that's the goal. And it's it's a different uh, type of activity. If, if you care about solving a particular problem, then of course you're not necessarily interested in um, understanding what works or what doesn't work and like you can try many different things. And these are complementary approaches. And, and the second part was... Uh, <laughs> okay, sorry, it's not the best question, but I, I was I was wanted, wanted to know if uh, you felt that bandit algorithms are... Producing these bandit algorithms is more like a, an engineering uh, invention or more like a scientific discovery. Oh, I see. Like, I guess uh, it depends, right? Um, so if you use an automated method to discover bandit algorithms, then... Uh, the study of the automated ergotum, uh, of when does it work, how does it work, to what extent can it work, could be studied as a scientific or mathematical question. It's a, it, could, it could be approached as a formal question. But you can also uh, decide to, uh, to start with a problem setting and then try to find the best uh, ergotum for that setting, let it be a bandit ergotum or anything else. That would also be a scientific uh, approach. Uh, but if you care about uh, a practical problem, then um, you know you can just try different things. And as long as your engineering practice is sound, meaning that uh, the inference is usually there is some uncertainty about like you know like the application, and so you're you're making inferences about uh, what's going to work, what's not going to work. And as long as you have a sound approach to this, uh, then you can try many different things. Your UCT algorithm, uh, I think from a 2006 paper, Bandit-Based Monte Carlo Planning, um, is at the heart of AlphaGo, AlphaZero, and MuZero. Is that right? So some version, uh, or maybe I should say an algorithm that was inspired uh, by UCT, that's called PUCT, is, is at the heart. So it's a modification of UCT, which is being used by these algorithms. So did you foresee um, that type of use when you first came up with it? Definitely some kind of use always on your mind when you're trying to come up with uh, an algorithm. 
And we were looking at the game domains and specifically goal. You're always optimistic, right? Uh, about uh, the future of any of your inventions, if you want. Uh, but uh, I don't think that we were hoping at the time that in about a decade, this algorithm is going to contribute uh, in some way to a major success like uh, the success of AlphaGo. Would you say that this algorithm is timeless or would you say that at some point it could maybe be superseded? And I mean the PUCT. Yeah, right. Uh, I guess it's uh, maybe, well, I don't think anything is timeless. Uh, <laughs> uh, for, um, for some time, uh, it can stand as the uh, default algorithm, I hope, uh, that others need to uh, supersede. And, and then, then it fulfills its purpose. Uh, I think that's, uh, there's a sense in which it can be timeless, but just for a while. So it's not timeless. Was it a major effort to develop, um, UC, UCT or, uh, like in retrospect, when you think about it, was it, was it a, a big project for you or something minor? It was a fun project. Uh, it happened, uh, when I've been uh, still in Hungary, uh, working with a colleague, uh, Levante Kocsis, uh, and uh, we were learning about Bandits, and my colleague's uh, specialty has been uh, learning in games. And he went to uh, a conference on this topic, and he came back and uh, told me that, uh, hey, Chaba, uh, there's all this buzz about this Monte Carlo three search algorithms, but they are doing it all wrong. Can we do uh, something about this by merging with Spanish algorithms? And uh, it's been uh, quite fun to do this. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about the, the notion of adversary in bandits that comes up often. If I understand correctly, the adversary in bandits is not typically like a learning agent that's designed to minimize our reward in a game theory sense. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It's a weak adversary. So how do you contrast the, the adversarial bandits to a real competitive, uh, competitive agent, like in a multi-agent or game theory RL sense? Yeah. So the adversarial bandit framework um, comes from uh, adjusting online learning uh, where people study uh a general setting, uh, individual sequence prediction problems. Uh, you have a sequence uh, that you need to predict that you're not making much assumption about, uh, and you just want to lift uh, the statistical assumption and see whether you can define a notion of learning in a meaningful way. And it turns out that you can, and then you can generalize this and, and create this adversarial bandit setting. Um, so this is an attempt to uh, to understand what is important about uh, the statistical assumptions that uh, standard uh, learning theory uh, makes very often, uh, which of these assumptions are essential and to what degree uh, to learning. Okay, so but w if there was a, a learning competitor that was trying to minimize your reward, would you say that was also an uh, adversary in this sense? Well, you could say that it would be an adversary, but uh, the uh, algorithms uh, that are developed for this adverse setting uh, are not necessarily good algorithms. Nevertheless, it happens that very often they are 
maybe with some extra uh, care and extra modifications. Uh, actually, my colleagues in Alberta and, and uh, elsewhere as uh, well have been using these adversarial learning algorithms uh, uh, in the context of games uh, to, for example, compute approximate Nash equilibrium. Can you tell us more about the special case of nature as an adversary and how that differs? So nature as an adversary doesn't care about uh, what I do, right? Uh, if I have a true adversary, then uh, the adversary is going to, to watch me. And uh, if it notices some regularity, uh, some pattern in, in the way I choose my actions, then it's, it will try to take advantage of that. Whereas uh, if I have to compete with nature, uh, uh, nature doesn't care about me, and I can try to take advantage of nature. So it's kind of like a really dumb adversary, if you wish. Like it could be a uh, like very challenging to compete with, but it's it's not reacting to you. When it comes to uncertainty in the bandit setting and the RL setting, it seems there's so many different places that uncertainty can arise. And of course, we have different types of uncertainty. Do we? And it seems like many methods just kind of bundle all this up together. Um, like, how important is it for us to distinguish between like epistemic and aleatoric uncertainty in in these settings? I think that this uh, distinction is pretty important uh, and uh, quite fundamental. Uh, you have to reason uh, about both types of uncertainty. Right, so it's uh, one is concerned with the uncertainty uh, of future events; the other is concerned with your uncertainty about, like, the nature of the environment that uh, you're exposed to. Uh, so you have to reason about both levels of uncertainty, uh, and I think that this is pretty well understood uh, now. So at NeurIPS 2019, uh, MTS Khan gave a, a, a talk on deep learning with Bayesian principles. Seems like we're just starting to figure out how to combine these two paradigms in a meaningful way, just in just in terms of um, supervised learning. Can you comment on that combination in terms of RL? Like, where are we in reinforcement learning in terms of bringing together the deep learning side and the Bayesian side? Yeah, that's that's a lot to reconcile. Uh, <laughs> so. Um... I guess uh, I know more about uh, how the Bayesian side interacts with RL. There are some very interesting uh, ideas there. So uh, Thompson's name came up uh, previously, and he was proposing uh, a very simple idea, which is uh, that you should um, sample... uh, uh, so you maintain a posterior distribution about a possible environment that you might be in, and whenever it comes uh, to make a decision about what actions to take, what you could do is that you just ma- uh, you just sample from this posterior a particular environment, and then uh, you run your planning algorithm on this. So this could be you know like a full RL environment. And then you figure out a policy, and then you, you could start to, to follow that policy, and you would follow that policy for a while. So this led to an algorithm called Posterior Sample Sampling Reinforcement Learning, PSRL, which is a very interesting and, and highly competitive idea. Uh, highly competitive algorithm, sorry. Uh, still, there is a lot of uh, things that are unknown. Uh, so sampling from a posterior uh, 
may not uh, be easy. Uh, usually, it's uh, this is spread out with uh, huge, huge computational challenges. Uh, so addressing those challenges uh, is one important topic. Uh, then you can uh, you can even go further and you ask uh, you can ask yourself: uh, Is it really important that I sample from a posterior distribution, or what type of distribution should I sample from? What is important about these distributions? So there are many many intriguing uh, questions here. Uh, and I expect uh, to see a lot more to come on this integration front. And of course, uh, at any point in time, if you need uh, functional approximation, then you can throw in some neural networks uh, here and there and uh, make everything more complete uh, in that way and uh, maybe more flexible. So uh, yeah, there are indeed uh, many uh, interesting ways you can combine these ideas and uh, we just started to uh, to explore them. If you had to describe what is missing from RL today to allow it to fulfill the like a complete vision of what it could potentially become, why, why is RL limited right now? Why is it still mostly in the lab? I guess RL um, deals with a scenario which is more complex uh, than the typical scenario where machine learning have been used. Uh, so sequential decision-making under uncertainty. And because of that, uh, deployment is, is harder. So that's one aspect. Another aspect of the problem is that, uh, of course, the space of area problems is so huge uh, that you can always find really, really difficult instances in it. Uh, which may require, uh, if you care about those specific instances, uh, some some special approaches, right? Uh, so we have a number of uh, uh, performance uh, limit lower bounds uh, for different area settings that uh, that clearly tell us that without uh, structural assumptions, further assumptions, you can't hope to do very well. So. Uh, at times, uh, it's even unclear to me whether we should blame uh, the current uh, algorithms or we should just blame or bad luck that uh, the space of other problems is so large. So is that why there, we keep seeing new algorithms coming out all the time? Yeah, I guess that could be one reason. Uh, we won't stop, right? Just because uh, something is really hard. So people are inventing new and newer things. Is much in RL um, fundamental and timeless? You know, if we go into the distant future, or I was thinking in you know an advanced alien civilization, would they agree with us that these are the basic building blocks of decision making and intelligence, or are some of this some of this maybe accidental, or is there no way to know? I guess I don't know about the aliens, uh, but. Uh... I feel that this is kind of the same as, as in mathematics in general. Uh, the closer uh, you stay to simple problems, the, uh, the higher the chances are going to be that you're going to find something fundamental uh, that is borderline timeless, uh, right? So the Cauchy-Schwarz inequality or whatnot, something really uh, simple and core to many of the things that we do it's not going to go away anytime soon. So the question is whether, for example, Markovian decision processes uh, 
as we know uh, of them today, are fundamental or not, uh, whether they are going to be uh, viewed as uh, foundational building blocks. Uh, I guess they are still, I would say, pretty simple. And as such, there could be some really valuable ideas there uh, in their simplicity. So I guess my hunch is that uh, there is something that, that is uh, core and foundational about uh, this uh, these frameworks that we are studying currently. I was present at the NeurIPS 2019 RL Social where there was a s- small group of people that you were part of and you were congratulating an OpenAI researcher on their Shadow Hand and Rubik's Cube work, that very impressive project. And I, and I also um, heard you say that you felt disappointed that they needed to use markers on the hands. I wonder if you can share a little bit more about that comment with our listeners of why that was important to you, why you felt that way about it. Yeah, I guess um, it is uh, It is not really specific to that project, uh, my disappointment. It's, it's more about uh, that uh, I was reflecting on that uh, in this problem, there is a perceptual element, which is that you need to sense, you know, the configuration of the cube and like how the hand is holding it and all that. Uh, and, uh, you know, like, it's, it's pretty limited perceptual problem, uh, compared to, uh, if you look around you, like what you see and, and the perceptual problems that, uh, humans have to deal with. And, and yet, uh, I guess for practical reasons, uh, or whatnot, uh, like, uh, these researchers, these, uh, great people at OpenAI were forced, uh, I guess, uh, to uh, to instrument the environment in such a way that uh, this perceptual problem didn't need to be dealt with uh, uh, in its complexity. Uh, whereas I, I find it like uh, maybe I I had expectations that uh, we should be able to deal with it by now. Yeah, so that that's my my disappointment. So it sounds like more a comment on the state of the field. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It clearly, bandit algorithms have, have been applied in practical applications for some time and been very successful. It seems maybe that's quite a lot less true for the full RL setting, um, yet it seems to have so much promise. Uh, our first guest on this podcast was Natasha Jakes, and she uh, spoke about her paper, Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning, uh, and that paper mentions uh, multiple areas where uh, emissions could be improved by applying potentially by applying RL in the future. Uh, but this hasn't really come to pass yet. And then we see a paper, a recent paper from Dulac Arnold um, et al. Challenges of real, real-world real reinforcement learning where they try to isolate what are the challenges um, keeping this out of the out of practice. I wonder how, how you feel about where we are in terms of bringing RL into real-world applications um, on a large scale. Is it very distant? Is it a distant dream? Is it just around the corner? How do you feel about that? I guess it's going to be a multi-year uh, process. Uh, we'll see more and more of our applications. Uh, I expect that. But uh, as with control, there are certain risks uh, involved, right? 
And uh, so people are conservative and when it comes to, uh, to applying uh, learning algorithms uh, that would be learning online. If you're learning offline, then you have a batch of data and learning with a batch of data is really complicated. Not only really complicated, it could be uh, just impossible because uh, the data may not have the information that you actually need uh, to come up with really good policies. Uh, so uh, RL is, is again riddled with uh, all of these challenges when it comes to applications. So uh, the easiest applications uh, could be, uh, you know, like uh, when uh, you have some internet, uh, I don't know, various uh, systems uh, uh, where everything happens uh, virtually, so to say, and maybe the impact of uh, one uh, not so great decision is not so high, right? So I guess uh, I expect more uh, applications to come, but uh, I don't expect uh, that this is going to be uh, happening uh, like a windfall or something like that. Do you think that model-based RL is critical to getting real real-world systems working and safe? I don't know about that. Uh, it depends on the application, uh, I guess. Uh, Model-based RL is, is a great idea, but it's not without any problems. Uh, yeah, I don't know the answer. Do you have any comments about time in model-based RL? Like, it's always struck me as restrictive that the standard model is a one-step, one-time-step model. And if you have your time scale very small, then it could be modeling such a small amount of time that makes it hard to model in a longer term. I guess people have been looking at uh, multi-step predictions uh, and compressing time uh, or abstracting time in various ways. Uh, so Harikel RL and various uh, approaches to that. Uh, you can easily imagine models and, and people have been looking at uh, building models uh, that make uh, multi-step predictions out of time. It's not trivial to do it, right? Because uh, are you staying on policy? Like for well, like what? What is the uh, the thing that you're trying to predict, right? Uh, I guess we'll keep trying. Uh, it's I I agree that it's an important aspect, and uh, maybe it's uh, receiving less attention, but uh, maybe it's because it's it's more complicated to to come up. Uh, so it's more complicated this problem, and as a result, it's uh, it takes more time to come up with the sort of right ideas for this setting. I guess we have the Predictron paper from David Silver and company that seemed to be abstracting time away in some sense. I actually didn't follow that entire paper, but I, I, I read it, I tried to follow it. It seems like they overcame the single step, um, the single time step issue and, and found some way to, to make time abstract, which seems very appealing. Yeah, um, I guess they are... A bunch of papers, even before that paper, people been talking about compressing time and abstracting time. Can you do you have any comments on explainability in RL? Like, do you feel like explainability is absolutely required for practical systems? I think it depends on the system. Uh, for some systems, it's going to be required, but uh, for others, uh, not so much. Uh, so I think explainability is an important topic, but uh, there will be lots of problems where explainability is not uh, strictly required. 
And also explainability is, you know, like it's relative to who you are explaining to. Uh, so what does it mean that uh, you explain something, uh, some decision that was uh, going on? It means that uh, whoever you're explaining to is going to accept the explanation as, as the explanation. Uh, so with humans, when they are explaining things to each other, they take into account what the other person knows and so on and so forth. So it, it's also true that the explanations may be, you know, like high level and uh, maybe, you know, not super precise. It's just like, you know, like oftentimes we tell each other, oh, tell me the intuition about this decision that you made. And uh if the explanation we receive uh, matches our expectations, then we accept that. Uh, anyways, uh, so it's it's a tricky question when humans are involved, I guess. Uh, Do you think that um, safe RL systems have to be explainable? Like, is that a required property of a safe system, or is it maybe sometimes optional? I'm pretty sure that uh, it's going to be optional uh, a lot of times. Um uh, but uh, safety is going to be uh, also critical, uh, uh, whether it's an RL system. I guess for RL systems, it's even more complicated than uh, for any other systems because uh, you have a sequence of decisions that uh, you make and then maybe those lead to a garden path that you never, ever enter except for once in a lifetime, but that could be highly costly and uh, could have bad consequences how do you how do you uh, how do you know that that's not going to happen it's it's a very important topic and uh, and uh, it's uh, it's good that a lot of people are looking at it do you think AGI is worth discussing these days um, why not <laughs> <laughs> So do you think of AGI as like something very abstract that can never be fully like attained, like an asymptote or something? Or do you think it's something that can really exist at some point? I guess discussions are important no matter what uh, at a very high level. Uh, so the idea that you should, you should increase generality uh, is a really, uh, I mean, like it's a very appealing idea, of course, uh, at the same time, we uh, also know uh, that generality uh, could come at some price. Uh, and uh, so the whole idea of like that you want to uh, be as general as possible and not compromise uh, performances is already intriguing one. I think that uh, what we see uh, from the history of AI is that people at times... Uh, were trying too hard to over-specialize too early. So it was an instance of uh, premature optimization, and, and that's a mistake that it is easy to fall into. Uh, as such, uh, it's, it's really interesting to see that uh, these days you have uh, all these learning algorithms that are achieving uh, things that uh, we couldn't imagine achieving uh, not a long time ago. And uh, they're even more general, right? So by increasing generality, you can be better. That's that's a very intriguing idea. But of course, it's uh, like not true in the first cases. So you have to find uh, the right way to to navigate this space, and and I find this quite interesting. Can you comment on the role of reinforcement learning on the path to AGI? 
What is the relationship between these two? Uh, reinforcement learning is, is just a learning algorithm uh, for a specific situation where you need to make decisions in a sequential manner and there is some uncertainty involved. To me, that's, uh, that's really fundamental to, uh, to intelligence. And, and if you want to abstract away a lot of details of intelligence, then uh, maybe one simple model is, is just to say that to, you, you want to solve as many uh, reinforcement learning problems with, uh, with a single algorithm as possible, right? Uh, so as such, I think it's, uh, it's quite foundational uh, to uh, AGI or whatever you want to call that. So AI research is very open these days and being openly published in general. Um, then we saw OpenAI limiting the publishing of GPT-2 and they rela- released it over uh, only after some time and they said it risk. Uh, do you feel like publishing in RL should continue openly for the foreseeable future? Or does, do you see a future in which at some point it doesn't, it's not safe to do that? Right. Uh so it's my personal opinion that we should keep science open, and that's or safe is bad. And uh, humanity has uh, a history of of being able to to deal with uh, new information that uh, uh, that is generated by scientists, and uh, not without any problems. But uh, things work out uh, well. And so I'm quite optimistic. I would take an optimistic stance uh, on this, and then I would say that we should keep publishing openly. Of course, uh, there are some risks. Then, like in specific cases, you might uh, override this rule. But I think, uh, uh, in general, we should aim for an open uh, publishing model. Uh, and then you, you, um, I once heard you quote Voltaire and maybe Spider-Man's Uncle Ben, um, who both said. With great power comes great responsibility. Do you ever worry that RL might be used for some unsavory purposes, like maybe, you know, StarCraft algorithms being used in military or machine learning being used to sway the electorate? Do you think there's anything the RL community can do to help ensure that the progress is is good for humanity on the balance? I think the RL community has responsibility of sharing uh, information about the progress it makes and inform the public about the potential ups and uh, downs of, uh, of all the advances that are being made. At the same time, as a researcher, you know, like your everyday work, uh, like you have to decide uh, whether you're going to like continue on, on your career and then pursue research or uh, you're going to maybe uh, contribute in, in other ways uh, by... Uh, working on, on keeping everyone else safe. So I think that we have roles for, like the, these are both benefit and nice, nice roles, and, and everyone should decide for themselves about uh, what they think their role should be, and uh, you can, of course, uh, go back and forth as well, if you wish. So these, these uh, bandit models with the rewards are probably running a large part of uh, e-commerce. If we thought about the these um, bandit rewards, if we included some notion of externalities, which often get ignored, like environmental or social impact, maybe, you know, all of global commerce could kind of become a little more green or a little more clean or a little more ethical. I wonder if you think that there's, there's a place for an idea like that. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that, I, I think that, uh, 
companies who are employing algorithms like this are already thinking about this. Uh, I'm, uh, I think uh, that it's already happening. Great. There's been a lot of discussion about failure modes for very simple rewards, like um, optimizing for engagement on social media, leading to extreme content. I wonder if you could, do you have any opinions on how we could un, uh, avoid these unwanted outcomes from those systems? Yeah, I'm not an expert in these specific topics, right? Uh, but, uh, but clearly, uh, when uh, there are feedback loops, and this is about uh, feedback loops, right? So you're designing an algorithm that is going to lead to some consequences, and, and as a result, uh, uh, things change and the algorithm drifts and uh, things can go really bad. So we should always uh, think about the feedback loops uh, in the systems. Uh, and uh, I, I think this is, uh, this is again, like uh, happening already. Uh, and I think it's, it's the interest of the companies as well to uh, take care of all of these risks, right? So if they want to survive in the long term, and it's in their benefit uh, of not not causing uh, you know like this uh, really unfortunate uh, unfolding of events. Can could you maybe contrast approaches to RL at DeepMind versus maybe what other institutions or labs are are doing? Is there like a certain DeepMind way or perspective or approach? I think DeepMind is uh, is representing. Uh, Maybe not evenly, but uh, quite a bit of uh, every uh, aspect of how you can approach uh, reinforcement learning and machine learning problems. Uh, it's, it's a big company, so uh, I don't think uh, of DeepMind as, you know, just an entity that has, has some very particular angle. Of course, uh, DeepMind being part of Alphabet has access to huge compute and, and resources. And uh, just uh, this fact is, is going to, uh, to mean that uh, you will see, you will keep seeing papers uh, that uh, heavily uh, use these resources. Uh, but I, I think that that's, uh, that's okay because it's, it's all about... Uh, you know, exploring the space of possibilities, exploring what's possible. And so once you have access to these resources, then, then you should try to take advantage of that. So can I ask you, what, what are you focused on these days, personally, uh, work-wise? I'm trying to focus more on uh, exploration in reinforcement learning. We just finished with my colleague, uh, Thor Baltimore, uh, this book in Bandits. Uh, so trying to move a little bit more towards the RS space uh, and model-based reinforcement learning, uh, how to use um, side information in reinforcement learning, how to deal with pattern-based specification in reinforcement learning. These are the topics I look at currently. So aside from your current work, are there a few specific trends in RL that you find super interesting at this at this moment, very recently? Yeah, I, I really like the, the works uh, where people start to look at simple pump DPs. So pump DP is this special observable MDP. Uh, and uh, in these simple models, uh, you're not 
observing the state directly. So maybe there are a few states, a hundred states or whatnot, but uh, you make observations in the state and then you observe maybe an image, which is a very high dimensional quantity. And you try to design algorithms that uh, don't break down, even though uh, the observation space, the possible observation space is humongous, right? The underlying state space is also, you try to discover underlying regularities and take advantage of this. So there's been a, a number of papers that came out uh, on this, which are really nice. I have one last question for you. DeepMind has been around now for 10 years. Can you help us imagine what reinforcement learning might be like in another 10 oh, years? Gosh. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I hope that it's going to be... Uh, as popular or even more popular than today, uh, but we need uh, a lot more new ideas, I guess, uh, hierarchical RL, dealing with spatial observability, taking those actions to just collect information. Uh, we need a lot more uh, research. So I found your, your name appears as uh, Prince Chaba in Hungarian mythology, meaning a gift from the heavens. I, I want to say this has been a real gift to myself and our listeners. Thank you so much, Chaba. I thank you. That's our episode for today, folks. Be sure to check talkrl.com for more great episodes.